What's up, everybody? Welcome to another episode of All Out War. I am Turner, and I am in the studio with Jessica. What's up, Jessica? Hey, hey y'all. Yes, we have an amazing podcast episode. We just finished a conversation with Mondo Gonzalez. It's going to be great, and I'm looking forward to more conversations with him in the future. Me too. And I will hold him to that because he said he would. <laughs> uh, this is The recording date is October the 15th, 2023. The world is unhinged right now, and most mm -hmm. of you know. Um, and so just as a courtesy and an honoring of Scripture itself, I would just ask all of our Christian audience to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Uh, we're commanded in Scripture to do that, and I think it would be good for us to honor the Lord and obey and pray mm -hmm. for that. Um, and I think if we just obey God, we get a blessing anyway. So do it selfishly, even if you don't feel like <laughs> you should or have to. <laughs> but um, we're going to be talking about the red heifer and the third temple and Jerusalem. And so it's a timely conversation. And we lose Jessica a little bit at the beginning, but she pops <laughs> in. She pops back in. And so we'll, we'll, we'll have her. It'll be me and, me and Mondo. Mondo Amondo, and then uh, and then and then it Jessica pops in. So, anyways, like I always say, sit back, grab a coffee, and enjoy. You're listening to the All Out War podcast. Well, everybody, we have a really special guest uh, tonight for the podcast. I'm super excited. It's someone that um, I've kind of been watching from afar for a long time through the different ministries and things that he's a part of. We have a the co-host of Prophecy Watchers, the author of The Red Heifer Ritual, which we're going to be talking about tonight, and uh, a pastor, Mondo Gonzalez. Mondo, thank you for joining us on the podcast. It's great to be here. Man, and you just came off of the uh, really incredible weekend with the Prophecy Watchers Conference. Anything uh, that you want to share <laughs> highlights about that? I'll, I'll even back up a minute because I spent uh, three weeks in Europe uh, at different prophecy conferences with Billy Crone and, and a host of others, Tom Hughes and Brandon Holthouse and Ken Michael. Mm. And uh, we, went, we were in uh, Northern Ireland, England, Scotland, and then down to Italy and then we came back and all of us were, you know, we had like three days before our conference in, o in Norman, Oklahoma. But we, we were just blessed that, you know, people are hungry out there. And that is the power of social media in that you have all these people around the world that are listening a lot to American podcasters and, and, and different things. And they're hungry and they're alone. And that that's what I found was the most powerful thing was, uh, you know, again, like your podcast and others people listen and they're encouraged because they really, there's not a lot in, in Europe and there's not even a lot of podcasters in Europe. So they feed off a lot of what we're doing over here. And many people literally, they were in tears looking at me saying, thank you for not forgetting about us. It was just powerful. And then, you know, to come back and get to our conference where, you know, we had 25 speakers, you know, the, one of the, all the most well-known speakers pretty much. And again, 1200 people, it was, it was tremendous to see again, people are excited, but they also, they're looking they're really looking to, to, to gain some fellowship with others because we know that things are getting tight. Things are getting a little bit more challenging and it's only going to get more. Oh, hundred percent. Yeah. I, the timing of things right now, 
uh, is just incredible. And I've said this before, and uh, you know, I think with COVID, you know, a couple years ago, things just began to accelerate uh, with just what was happening just in our culture, the the decline of it, and then also just the the tyranny of governments and. And what I like to call this is just really the moving of the pieces, setting the stage for what is going to eventually be, you know, those end time events. And um, so a ministry like that, doing a conference like that is super vital for people that are in touch, paying attention. You know, we like to call them the watchers. You know, they're watching what's going on. They're they're reading the signs and reading their Bibles and they're trying to make sense of what's going on for people. So I'm really grateful for you know, everything you guys do, Prophecy Watchers, the, you know, I really was a little, I was uh, hopeful I could catch the conference and, and I'll probably have to do the digital download a little bit later. But, um, but yeah, I think it's, it was, that's really awesome. So what I wanted to talk about, and we'll have to do a, a slight introduction about this because some people, many people are not familiar with what your new book is about, about the red heifer and the ritual involved with that. So I wanted to ask you to kind of explain a little bit about that, and we'll talk about kind of the importance of it and, you know, why it's important to us even today. Um, you know, for someone that doesn't know about the Red Heifer and what that's all about, can you kind of briefly give them, get them up to speed? Yeah, the, uh, it's interesting. You're, you're so right that a lot of churches that don't teach prophecy, or even as we were discussing earlier, they don't spend a lot of time in the Old Testament. Well, you know, the red heifer I kind of started out the introduction of the book is, why should we care about a red cow? I mean, really? Well, <laughs> the, the fact of the matter is, I mean, the red heifer, you know, heifer is just a cow. In, in the Hebrew, it's just red cow, but people talk about a heifer, but um, some translations have that. It's in the Bible. It's in the book of Numbers, chapter 19, and it, it began as a, as, a, as a ceremony or a ritual that Moses instituted in order for the Israelites who would approach the temple, the tabernacle at the time, uh, they would have to be clean or unclean. If they had a family member die uh, in their tent, which uh, we know that all the generation uh, during the 40-year wandering died, so you you would become unclean. Well, then you couldn't go and offer your, your offering at the tabernacle. And so God made a very inexpensive way for people to be uh, declared or, or, or washed to, to be what we would know as be clean. And uh, which is very gracious of God to do that because normally you'd have to wait or you have to do an offering. And God said, okay, I want you to offer this red heifer. I want you to burn it. And then I want you to take the ashes. uh, And it has like, you know, a hyssop and cedar wood and and a red scarlet um, cloth. God said, burn everything and take the ashes and mix it with water. And then you could go to the priest and, and the priest would just sprinkle you with some water and you'd be declared ritually clean. And then you could go along and do your offering. Well, the reason that's it, that's important is if you fast forward, the Bible very much predicts that, uh, you know, uh, Matthew and Matthew 24, Jesus made a comment about uh, that the temple would be in existence. Uh, Daniel makes a comment about the temple being in existence in Daniel 9.27. Paul makes a reference in 2 Thessalonians 2 that the Antichrist would come to this temple. John in Revelation 11 is talking about measuring a temple during the, the tribulation period. So you have four various witnesses that show us, that give us a snapshot it doesn't tell us how it's going to happen. It just says on in the middle of the tribulation, a temple is going to exist. And so when we think about it logically, we're, we're kind of going backwards a little bit and saying, well, we know that a temple is there and we know it's 100 percent true. We also can look and see that the Jews, the rabbinic Jews today 
have been wanting to build a temple for a long time, and they've done a lot of things. But for them, in their thinking, they cannot um, build the temple unless they have the red heifer because they know they need the red heifer's ashes in order to sprinkle the Temple Mount area and everything else in order to cleanse it. So that's why the red heifer is important. The subtitle of the book is uh, The Last Piece of the Third Temple Puzzle because, again, we know a temple is going to be there, but a temple cannot be there unless they are able to sprinkle and cleanse the area, which then requires a red heifer, which is why then they are pursuing it. Okay, so they need the heifer. It has to be used so that they can dedicate the area for the temple to be built, cleanse it, and, and then, then they can go forward. Now, I was in Israel uh, probably 2015 or 16. I can't remember what year it was. And we toured the Temple Mount area, and we saw that they have literally all of the elements required for the temple except for the actual building. So... The fact that they have these heifers, does that mean that they're expecting to build this temple very soon? They are. They are so super excited, as you mentioned. And in, in one of the chapters of the book, I I go through and I highlight all the other preparations because there's, there's multiple layers of preparation that they've already completed. And so they are eager. They, they, um, they are determined to build it. And then the red heifer's there, and they're like, okay, if we can get that done, then then not only if somebody walks up, like if they want to ascend the Temple Mount, they can be declared clean, they can be sprinkled, blah, 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 a variety of things. But no, they they believe that the, – the other thing, they believe that the timing is now because uh, one of the – let me step back for a minute. In, in all of this, I want to let people know I'm not endorsing the Third Temple. Okay, <laughs> right, right. I, I'm not endorsing this. I'm not endorsing uh, supporting it necessarily. Each person, each Christian has to do that between them and the Lord. But so just because I'm talking about it and I say that it's exciting, it's exciting because it's showing us that Jesus is coming soon. Not not it's exciting for the temple itself. Because and I spend two chapters in the book talking about what the New Testament says about the heifer and also what the Christian's perspective should be theologically. We know that the, the, the Mosaic system is over. It's done. The red heifer system was all fulfilled in Jesus. So there's no real value there for even the Jewish people doing it today. But nevertheless, for them, they reject Jesus. They're, they're not saved. They, 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 they need Jesus to be saved. There's only one way, John 14, 6. And if, if, if Jesus says, if you don't honor me, you don't honor the father. So, that's very important. So if we step back, we realize that the Jews, they look at it scripturally, but also from a rabbinic rabbi, Talmud, all these Jewish writings, the Jewish traditions that Jesus interacted with in Matthew 15. So for them, I'll just say this, that Maimonides was a 12th century uh, rabbi, uh, scholar, and he made the comment that there had been nine red heifers sacrificed or slaughtered is a better word from the time of Moses until the first century. And so here he is a thousand years later, and he's like, you know, we haven't done, and he had a whole chapter, I, I have it in the book, about his book that he wrote on it, on the Mishnah Torah. And he says, look, when the, fi- when, the, when the tenth red heifer comes, it will be slaughtered by the Messiah himself. Now, <laughs> Jews today, they don't necessarily uh, hold it to that, but what they say is the fact that we have five red heifers that were flown to Israel in September of 2022 they're believing the time of Messiah is now because Maimonides said that when it comes to where we can do it, the Messianic era has arrived. And honestly, we would agree with that to some to some extent because we know that Jesus' arrival is very soon, the, the true Messiah. But 
Interestingly, one of the, the five that were taken over has been disqualified. So there are only four left. And there's a whole bunch of other background there to it, to the four that are left and their birthday. So we're living in exciting times. We could circle back to that about their birthday and how we are living in it actually in this today. So, so one of the things that, um, that I was that a lot of people are confused about because you made a really great point there about the temple and how as Christians for us, it's not really a, a, a pertinence because you, you know, scriptures are pretty clear. Paul, Paul says himself, we are the temple of the Holy spirit that, uh, and then Jesus himself declared that, Hey, see all these, not one stone will be left on top of another, which is a pretty incredible statement to be said, seeing that, Paul would later talk about a third temple, and they would talk about how it's going to be rebuilt. How does the third temple, and obviously the heifer's part of that, because you need the heifer to dedicate, and I want to get into that a little bit more in just a second, but how does that third temple play into, and you alluded to it, I know that, but uh, play into for us as Christians the, the, the importance of itself? You know, that, I'm glad you asked that, because that often is the... Um, initial knee-jerk reaction against the idea of of taking Daniel or Paul or Jesus or John literally that there's going to be a third temple. And so, it, for example, as you referenced, in 1 Corinthians 3.16, Paul is talking in plurality. He says, don't you know you are the temple? And so the church the church is a temple. That is true. A very, I'm not denying that. The scripture says it. Paul is using nas, the Greek word, in a figurative way that we are this spiritual temple that's built up. First Peter 2 says something similar about a holy temple being built. So we're not denying that. And, and, and what we look at the Greek word, as we know, words can be used figuratively or literally. We have to take it in the context. And in 1 Corinthians 3, it's clearly non-literal. Paul is saying we are the spiritual temple. Well, then in chapter 6, verse 19, he brings it up again as it relates to the temple of the body. And he says he's talking about sexual morality. Don't do it because don't you know that your body is a temple? So there he's speaking about the individual and he uses the same word as it relates to a figurative uh, reference to our physical body. And so we're not denying that. However, when you look at the other passages, the same Paul in 2 Thessalonians 2, clearly it says the Antichrist is going to come and stand in, in, in the temple of God, declare himself to be God. Yeah. You can't you can't make that figurative. Right. You know. <laughs> You just can't. Is he standing in the temple of the church? In which church? That just seems really odd. And in fact, in Revelation 11, when John is told to measure the temple, there's no way to spiritualize that either or make it figurative. Uh, in fact, in Daniel 9:27, Paul is talking about th these literal sacrifices of the Jews being stopped. Well, that again, that's not, you don't figurative, you, you don't spiritualize that. Mm -hmm. And then when Jesus says that the that when the abomination of desolation is set up, when you see it standing in the holy place, that's not the church. So I think it's very important that we make a distinction between the reality of Paul using it figuratively, but also the other context of the scripture showing that there's a literal rebuilt temple in the last days on that time frame that's going to be a centralized location for the Jews. So the big thing is where are they going to put this temple? Like that's always been the big debate. And in light of like everything that's kind of happened over the last week, right, right here we are on October 15th, we're recording this in 2023. There's been uh, an invasion by Hamas. There's been mm -hmm. a retaliation or a you know, defense of themselves with by Israel. And it's looking like there could be other nations being pulled into this 
this whole thing, you know, Libya, Syria, uh, Iran, it looks like. And my thing is this, is that as we, as believers and as Israel is concerned, does this play, like, are they going to negotiate something here and say, oh, we can actually do the, we can move the temple here, we can put the temple here. Uh, Is this, what's at play here? You know, that's, there's, Work at it. We'll work at it two ways. One of one of the ways is that there's three different perspectives on where the temple should be, all with various archaeological backgrounds and opinions. One is that it'll sit in the north uh, near the Dome of the Spirits, uh, which when I go to Israel, I'll bring people there when I lead tour groups and be like, "Hey, let's come over here. This is one of the options." The other one is that it would be uh, right where the Dome of the Rock is, or it would be just south of the Dome of the Rock, uh, not necessarily where the Al Aqsa Mosque is, but what people don't realize is the, the Temple Mount is 35 acres. It's huge. There, yeah. There's plenty of room. <laughs> yeah. So th- those are the three views. The, the other idea is that the Bible, as always, it just gives us a snapshot. There's a temple there. It doesn't tell us how. And so it's left up to us to kind of watch the current events and speculate a little bit the best that we can. But we also do all that with humility because we know that, what is here today might not be tomorrow. Yeah. And so, especially with the latest things with Israel, we, we don't know what this latest, you know, war is going to, how it's going to end up. But what I, what I wrote about in one of the chapters in the book was talking about how the current Knesset, the, the parliament of Israel is the most religious that's ever been in the history of Israel. So there's a lot of, there's a lot of things that are new at the moment that are different than they were 10 years ago. And one of them, again, is, the, is the, the religious component. But the other thing is just the religious viewpoints of the rabbis. The rabbis, you know, 30 years ago were very adamant that you are not allowed to go up. No Jew was allowed to go up on the Temple Mount. Well, that's changed. The, the, some of the, the younger, more, maybe you say progressive religious rabbis are promoting it, it's actually your commandment to go up there. So last year, there was over 50,000 Jews that ascended on the Temple Mount. And even uh, Itamar Gavir, he's, he's, he's uh, a minister in the cabinet uh, of Netanyahu. First day that they were sworn in, he went up on the Temple Mount just to say, hey, you know what? Things are changing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And for anybody that that isn't familiar with that area, the Temple Mount area, the, the most one of the most known areas is it's commonly called the Wailing Wall or, or the Western Wall. And the reason that they gather at that wall is because they believe that, that is probably the closest place to the actual location of where the temple would have been, which is kind of like kind of underneath the area of where the mosque is, unfortunately. Um, but one, one of the things that I was in this, you may not even know the answer to this question, but this is something that I've thought about oftentimes, and I've never really had the right person to ask. And I think you might be the guy uh, <laughs> not to throw you under the bus for anything. I'll try. I'll try. When they, <laughs> if they, and when they build the temple, one of the elements of the temple is the Ark of the Covenant. And obviously they don't have it. So how are they going to continue with the ritualistic sacrifices and the atonements and the things that the priests were supposed to do without the, especially for Yom Kippur, right? Because that's the day of atonement for, you know, the whole nation, right? Well, two things on that. Uh, there's a verse, it's interesting, in, in Jeremiah 3.16, uh, it says that the ark will be remembered no more. Now, now Jeremiah is writing this, you know, around 600 B.C., 
So is that a reference to after they are, you know, they go off to Babylon for 70 years and they come back and they build what we understand is the second temple, the Zerubbabel temple, which is uh, enlarged by Herod. So is he making a reference? Is that prophecy in reference to the, the second temple or is it reference to the millennial period? Right. But so we don't know that there's no reference at all during the time of Jesus that there was an ark there. Now, in, hmm. in the book of Maccabees, which we don't take as scripture, it, des- it describes Jeremiah taking the ark and hiding it and it going off and then, then before the Babylonian captivity and Nebuchadnezzar coming down. So they take it off and they hide it and it'll come back at the proper time, which obviously doesn't seem to be the second temple, the time of Jesus. But I will say this, that the Jewish rabbis today will tell you, oh, we have it. We know exactly where it is. <laughs> and, and, and so sure. when the time comes... We'll bring it out. But until then, we're not going to go public with it because that wouldn't help us. So whether, I, I can't say whether they're telling the truth, but they are 100% out of it that they have it. Okay. So there'll be something. <laughs> there'll be something. <laughs> <laughs> and obviously, you know, as a born-again Christian, if you're, if you're listening to this and you're a Christian, the Ark of the Covenant and, you know, all the raiders of the lost Ark, uh, you know, imagery in your mind, got to put that aside for a minute. But there was an absolute presence of the holiness of God and that only the high priest could, could go behind the curtain. And the significance behind that when Jesus died is that that, that curtain tore in half and yeah. it exposed the Holy of Holies and it, and it was an indication that God was then now going to make his Holy of Holies within us he, he would tabernacle within us those that live by faith and trust in christ and so we have the same spirit that was behind the veil in us paul says that the same spirit that rose christ from the dead dwells within us so i really um there won't be the same power when we think about the temple it won't have because christ has fulfilled and done all these things but it's so important for last days prophecies in fulfillment mm-hmm. And to be able to identify the the Antichrist in particular. Um, So when we talk about the heifer, this particular red bull, what makes it so significant? Because I'm seeing like, um, you know, and you have to forgive my ignorance, but I'm seeing guys like with microscopes or like uh, magnifying glasses and they're like, (laughs) like petting it. And it looks like they're trying to inspect it or something. What, what's up with all that? So, yeah, okay. that, that, this is where the biblical commandment in Numbers 19, where God just says, take a red cow. He doesn't, he doesn't give you any more specifics. Uh, it is, it's not a bull. It's a female cow. Okay. Uh, and he says it has to be unblemished with no yoke ever being on it. And that's pretty much all it says. But the rabbis then say, well, and this is typical with them about any commandment, is they'll say, well, Let's add some extra rules there to make sure that we don't risk it. And so the reason they're out there with their magnifying glasses is they have within the, the, the rabbinic literature, especially what we understand as the Mishnah, uh, which was written about 200 AD. It's the, it's, the, it's the oral law written down. And then from that, you have something called the Talmud. And there's two versions of that. That's not important. But that was about 500 AD. And so when you read it. It, it really is typical that it, with one idea, you have five opinions. And so <laughs> within Jewish thinking, because one rabbi will say, well, it can have three hairs. And the other rabbi says it can have one hair. And so the consensus today is that you can't have more than two non-red hairs in order to fulfill the commandment that God gave coming out of one single follicle. So that's why they're down there with the magnifying glass because okay. they're saying, oh, 
that's a non-red hair. Or are there any others coming out of the same follicle? If it is, well, then the, the whole cow is disqualified. So that's why they're looking at it, not based on the Bible. Again, many Christians say, well, I didn't read anything about that. No, you won't. But, <laughs> but again, we don't. We don't look. We don't follow the rabbinic tradition. Right. Uh, we follow the scripture, as and, and and that's the argument that Jesus had with the rabbis at the time, because many of their rabbinic rules violated the scripture. So that's why they're doing that. Is you have they they even have to some degree where it says no yoke. God says that, so it can never have been worked. But today they say, well, if if a cloth or a a blanket is put on it, <laughs> that's potentially disqualifying the cow. And they said, but if a bird lands on it, well, we'll allow the bird to land on it. It's oh, goodness. This is the nature of, you read this and you're like, oh, my God, I'm falling asleep here. But that's why I, I spent the time looking at all this in order to make it accessible to people in the book to say, look, you're wondering as a Christian, why in the world? Like, like you just asked, why are they looking at magnify glasses? So, well, let me tell you, this is where it is. You don't need to have the Talmud. I quote it in there. You don't need to have the Mishnah. I quote it. This is why when you look, they're doing the things that they're doing. You know, it's uh, it's kind of interesting. I have a funny story about the red cow thing. Is that whenever um, I first heard about it, because I've never heard about the temple knowledge or education in churches. Like, I've never been taught that. And so when I started following prophecy about three years ago, you know, I was just dove deep into everything and someone said, oh, well, we don't have the red cow yet. And so I went and Googled it and I learned it from a South Park episode. Like nice. <laughs> it had this really dumb scene about like the, uh, the fight between the cows and like them hiding the cows. And I'm like, and I, I learned the insignificance from that. <laughs> you know, they take it very serious. It's amazing. Yeah. They've been yeah. looking for them for 40 40 plus years back in the early eighties. Mm-hmm. So I highlight, you know, all of the original heifers, you know, the searches and then the latest one with the five and why it's different now. And so again, I, I'm not a, I'm not a sensationalist. I'm not a hype person, mm-hmm. but I, I said, you know what, this is necessary for what we're talking about. There's a lot of people that they're coming into prophecy. They're learning. It's exciting times that we're in. And I go, what is the, what's the big deal with the red cow? So even <laughs> if they slaughter the cow, at least, Somebody, I, I was like, you know what? No matter if they slaughter these or one of them or not, they'll at least have a background why it was significant historically mm-hmm. if that was the case. So, yeah. do you know if they could slaughter the cow, get the ashes, and pre- preserve them and wait? Oh, sure. The okay. There's actually one of the uh, one of the more earlier things that the rabbis were doing is. Again, if you go from the time of Jesus to Moses, you know, you're talking 1,400 years. And there were only nine cows that had been slaughtered, according to, you know, uh, Maimonides. So they they would slaughter the cow, and they would uh, keep the ashes, and then they would just mix them with water when necessary. And so, you know, you have, you calculate that out, that's one, you know, every other century, or about one and a half centuries, if so to speak. And so you're looking at this. The, what they what they first started to do was they were looking for maybe a uh, there was a guy that was an amateur archaeologist Vendel Jones who claimed to have found the ashes of the red heifer from the first century. Wow! And so he's like, they're they're in hiding. I'm out here, you know, in in, in, the, in Israel. I'm looking for them, and I found them. Well, 
unfortunately, no one ever really gave him credibility. Unfortunately, or fortunately, I don't know. <laughs> I, I reserve, I'm not going to make him comment on it. But nevertheless, the rabbis today rejected that 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 bowl of whatever it was, and so mm-hmm. they said, "Well, that would be great if we found it, but we just let's just look for a new red heifer that we can slaughter." Yeah, yeah. So it's not really like it's a miraculous thing if this red heifer it meets all the requirements, then. Or is it? Well, that brings us back to one of the questions that I asked in the book. And what I did in the book was I I sent out several questions to probably 10 or 15 different prophecy teachers. And I said, look, I don't want them just to get Mono's opinion. You know, you guys are all out here. Uh, what do you guys think about this? And and so I printed all their, their responses in the book so that people could go to their favorite prophecy teacher and say, oh, well, I like his opinion. Okay. So one of the questions that I asked was, uh, is it possible that God is providentially, maybe even miraculously, providing this red heifer? Because it's very their, – their, their requirements are extremely stringent. So the idea that you would have one at all is pretty impressive. So I said, could God be providentially providing it without endorsing it? And so several of them had different opinions, and in my opinion – I think that God does a lot of things providentially without endorsing it um, because he has an appointment with the Jewish people. All Israel is going to be saved at the end of the tribulation by putting their faith and trust in Jesus. But the tribulation is going to be extremely challenging and difficult for them. And God is is allowing these things to happen because he's allowing them to re-embrace Moses and the sacrificial system, which, again, God has officially ended. It was ended with Jesus. Mm -hmm. That's why you mentioned earlier the veil was torn from top to bottom. And there's a whole bunch of other little things that prove that that I show. But the fact of the matter is God's not endorsing this temple, but he's going to provide, I, I think providentially, he'll provide these things and he'll allow them to build it because he can certainly stop them building it. But he's going to allow them to build it because he's going to say, all right, guys, um, you want to do it your own way? I've already shown you very clearly that Jesus is the final sacrifice. But if you're going to reject him, I'll let you do this. And then we're going to see they're going to make this agreement with the Antichrist, and he's going to and God's going to say, "Let's see how that works for you." Kind of like a Doctor Phil, right? How's that going to work for you? <laughs> and then through the tribulation period, he's going to betray them and he's going to seek to slaughter them. So that goes back to I do think that God is providentially working prophecy out for His means of saving the Jewish people at the end through His Son. Yeah, hundred mm-hmm. percent, totally agree. I um. When you were, when you mentioned these things about God allowing certain things, you know, not in, but He doesn't necessarily endorse them. Mm-hmm. He keeps His word, you know, yeah. and He said He was gonna, it was gonna be there. He said that there's gonna be a third temple. So <laughs> we know we have to at some point they have to have something. I mean, I, man, I'm not a date guy or anything like that. You know, I I really try to um, just look at prophecy being fulfilled after the fact. That's kind of my thing. Um, but honestly, the days we're living in and the fact that they have five of these things, five of these red heifers, and they're in Israel now, which is even better, because I, I heard that they were um, uh, born in Texas or something like Texas. that. Texas, yeah. They that's were? why they're dis- that's why like there's so many people out there saying they're disqualified because they were born in Texas. Oh. <laughs> well, I addressed that in the book. Okay. <laughs> I mean, it's, again, this, my goal was to say, okay, let's let's look at all the objections, and 
this isn't anything new. And the people that say this are just, they're they're not, they're they're ill-informed or uninformed because the rabbis talked about this in 500 AD. So the the question that they asked was, can can we buy a heifer from a Gentile? Mm -hmm. And so they argue back and forth. And at the end of the day, not only do the the 5th century and the 4th century and the 3rd century rabbis say yes, but Maimonides, again in the 12th century, very respected uh, rabbinic figure, said absolutely there's no problem with them buying the heifer from a Gentile. So those that say that automatically disqualifies them, they're they're just uninformed. Mm-hmm. Man, that's that is uh, the, the debates. Like, <laughs> if you want a picture of legalism, this is it, right? Here it is, right here. Absolutely. <laughs> you pick. Do you want this, or would you prefer to have grace? You know, <laughs> it's like true. It's held right in front of you. Um, so, uh, as far as uh, these heifers, so now they're there. They're in. They're in Israel, and these guys, they're red. Like. What's the sentiment of the Jewish people? Because I know when I was there, it was pretty secularized. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, without a temple, it actually lends itself to being that way because that's such an identity for them in their religion, you know. Um, what's the sentiment of the people? Are they are they excited? Do they want to? Is it just a sect of people that want to build this temple? Are there? Uh, what, what's your feel on that? You know, that, that, it's good to bring up because uh, what I find is in bringing groups to Israel, uh, most people think that when you go to Israel, they're all a bunch of religious people. And in fact, most people are surprised. I was too, uh, when, the first time I went, was that, you know, 80% of Israel is secular. They, they, they might celebrate culturally some of the festivals. Uh, sometimes they don't even do that. So the remaining 20% are, would be conservative or religious or maybe the ultra-Orthodox, you know, the guys that you see with the curly hairs come down and the big hats, some of the Hasidic Jews. Um, but even of that group, as you have factions. I mean, just like in, the, in Jesus' day, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Essenes, the Herodians, you have all these factions. It's no different today. But so – you have certain rabbinic groups that are against the idea of a third temple. No, the Messiah will build it himself. Mm. But they, they, they're becoming more and more the minority. The, the, the more public, like the Temple Institute, the Temple Mount Fable, the third temple groups, they're becoming uh, very prominent because they're doing things. And they're, they're, now they're, they have positions in the government, as I said, that this is the most religious government ever. And so these people are in key positions. So you do have an increased interest and people in power. But the second thing that I found interesting was that maybe if you have a secular Jew, like right now, you know, Israel's under attack. And so before this, when we were there, I was there in Israel in March. Um, there were strikes, there were riots, just Israelis against each other, against some of the things of the Netanyahu government. But what this attack has happened is it's unified everybody. Yeah. And that was one of the, the fears that Hamas had or even uh, the, the Palestinian Authority had. And, and up to this time, the Palestinian Authority, were, Abbas, was quoted as saying, they're, they're, do not attack Israel. No, no uh, terrorist attacks because we don't want to risk them becoming united. They're tearing themselves up. Let them yeah. do it. Yeah. But for whatever reason, Hamas got the order to go for it, and it has united them. The other thing that I have found that I saw with even the secular people, they, they might say, I've never gone in the Temple Mount. I don't care about the temple, but it's discrimination that if I wanted to go up there, I couldn't. That the Muslim people are there, and, and but I can't. So 
it's more of a nationalistic flavor rather than a religious flavor or enthusiasm. And so that's been changing because, you know, again, 20 years ago, they didn't care enough. But now because Israel's becoming increasingly isolated in the world, now you have this movement of defending the right of Jews to go up there, whether they're religious or not. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I could totally see this situation playing into that fully. Mm-hmm. And I can also yeah. see just the support of people returning back to Israel, you know, from other countries to kind of, you know, take their place back in their own homeland, uh, just as scripture says, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. It's supposed to happen. But um, but yeah, I it's interesting. And I had, I can't remember if I read this or I heard this, but was were they beginning to hand over the control of the Temple Mount to the Saudis or something like that recently? Okay, I'm glad you brought that up. To me, uh, that that is one of the most interesting and exciting because uh, in 1967, when Israel took control of the Temple Mount and Eastern Jerusalem, uh, uh, Moshe Dayan, which was a general, a secular general, atheist general. You know, they took control. And so you have all these relig- these Jews who had a religious aspect who were serving in the military. They go up, and here they are. They're on the Temple Mount. I mean, they're like, this is great. We, we got it. Well, then, before this, the rabbis had said, nobody's allowed to go near there. As you mentioned, they're worshiping at the Western Wall because they don't want to go up there and contaminate it. So Moshe Dayan made this agreement as a secular Jew with the jo- Jordan, the, the WAQ, the W-A-Q-F, and said, look, we don't, we don't, I don't care about this. I don't care about the Temple Mount. So we'll allow you to keep spiritual control of it, but we'll, we'll, we'll maintain the overall sovereignty of it. And so he made this agreement, which squashed any ideas, uh, religious ideas of, of rebuilding the temple right there. So jo- Jordan has maintained control since 1967. But lately, with all of the troubles, uh, this, the latest discussions that Israel's been having with Saudi Arabia – Saudi Arabia has made the, 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 the option of saying, well, maybe we should take control away from Jordan and we will maintain sovereignty or at least spiritual administration over the Temple Mount because they're thinking a little bit more uh, pragmatically and in, in possibly allowing that. So the fact that, that that's happening to me is kind of a game changer that the status quo with Jordan could be upended. Now, again, now Saudi Arabia has stepped back with this latest Israel response. Yeah. But you know what? They, they need Israel. They need Israel because of Iran. And the fact this latest in war that's happening, if Iran gets involved, it might push Saudi Arabia into the hands of Israel even quicker, even as much as they don't want to admit it publicly. Yeah. Yeah, I have a, I have a, a lot of thoughts on, on all of that, too. And um, I think— I mentioned this on our Instagram a, a week or so ago, but I think BRICS for the United States ha- plays into this because Iran was cozying up with Russia and China for mm-hmm. that, and they really want to get that petrodollar destroyed and start this new Saudi, you know, petrodollar that they're the BRIC dollar or whatever they call it. Mm-hmm. And, and Iran is a huge player in that. They do not like Israel. They do not like America, and they definitely would love to get that established because not only would it hurt america economically it will hurt israel as well yep. mm-hmm. and so I, I think that's part of it like i i see that like as a generic american interest <laughs> you know because i don't think typically our our politicians are too interested in the temple mount and if, <laughs> if they build a temple you know we're very secular as well in that way they're not uh you know 
I was very honest. I was very surprised that the United States sent over, you know, the Gerald Ford Carrier Group, mm-hmm. and there's another one they're heading there. Even the the UK Royal Navy is, is sending a group over into the Eastern Mediterranean. Very surprised by that. But then again, I think that their presence there is going to keep Iran at bay, yeah, to mm-hmm. some degree. Uh, so to me, that that was, you know, that's in Israel's favor. There's no doubt. Yeah. Yeah. I'm wondering what, like, um, Russia warned against the U.S. of getting involved in stuff. And I'm wondering um, if there's going to be more threats from Russia because of that. And I'm wondering if the U.S. would back down at all. Well, eventually. I, I think that... Um, no doubt there'll be more threats from Russia, uh, you know, especially based on the, the, the positioning or the posturing that we see with Ezekiel 38, mm-hmm. that Russia is going to be against Israel. But I don't think the U.S. will back down here in this moment. Now, we do mm-hmm. know something changes between now and Ezekiel 38 because mm-hmm. the United States is on the fence there. They're, they're just, you know, making comments or protests. But in this regard, then moving the, the group over there, I think that – you know, I, I actually think that the current administration wants war, uh, as well as the World Economic Forum and some of these other guys, surprisingly. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, they want depopulation. So for them, on one hand, I'm glad that they're there to provide a balance, but we also know that the current administration has – they're wicked. I mean, I hate to say that they're just wicked. They have evil intentions yeah. for the world, and they, they would love to see World War III happen. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, I mean, America is the war machine, so yep. it just benefits us to in their minds, you know, obviously, in their minds. you know, we're sending our kids to go die and, you know, these wars and saddling them with debt. But, you know, other than that, they love it. Other than that. <laughs> <laughs> um, man, so Jessica, I, you popped in a little bit late here. We've talked about a lot of stuff. I want to make sure you have an opportunity if, if there's some, some things that you want to ask Mondo here. Yeah, I'm so sad I was so late. Sorry, guys. <laughs> it's all good. Um, those, okay, seriously, the the time change or the time difference throws me off every time, and I'll get it at one point. But um, <laughs> uh, I would love to get your input of, so being, being a prophecy watcher for, like I said, the last three years, I've seen, I've heard from people that have done it, you know, 10 plus years. And um, now as I watch others, like start, you know, grabbing it up and start studying it, um, it's it's almost as if they kind of get excited about the wrong things. <laughs> and I wanted to see your opinion about if Christians should be excited for the temple and um, helping it. Like there's like, like account step to help the temple. Yeah. <laughs> Financially, yeah. right? Yeah. I've been watching for, for 30 years. I got saved, you know, at 18. And so uh, I've been watching for a while. But one of the things that I addressed in the book was that exact question, because there are only a, a Christian. You know, I was a pastor for a long time. So so the, the person in the pew, you know, Sometimes they're very interested and other people are casually interested. At the end of the day, a, a, a thousand times people say, just tell me what I'm supposed to do. You know, <laughs> what does God want me to do here? Does God want me to support it or not support it? So uh, three chapters of the book I spent on discussing, should a Christian support this? And that's where I mentioned that I had 
sent these questions out to several prophecy teachers and said, can you, as a pastor or prophecy teacher, what would you tell the average person? And so the the key the first question I asked was exactly what you asked is should we be excited about this well you know here you have for example uh, Amir Tsarfati usually people know about Amir uh, Israeli Jewish guy you know uh, big ministry and um, he he made a comment on his Telegram channel and said Christians should not be excited about this they should not be excited about the temple because this temple is going to be one that is just going it's going to deceive the Jews. It's going to be massive destruction. It's a it's an apostate system. It, it it violates what Jesus has done. So he's correct in the sense of, well, yeah, I'm not excited about the temple. I'm not promoting the temple. But mm-hmm. on the other hand, I would say, should we be excited about the idea of a temple being built? Yes, not because of what the temple itself. Of course, I'm not excited <laughs> about that. But I'm excited for what it shows because the temple shows that coming behind it is Jesus's return. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So. I'm excited that it's it's showing evidence and proof. I like proof uh, of that we are living in the last days and the end times. And the Bible says this will be here. And so when it appears, that excites me Or as the preparations continue. That excites me that, wow, hey, guys, here's tangible proof. What the Bible said would happen, it happens, and it shows us that Jesus is coming. And I, I'm a pre-trib guy. I believe the rapture is going to be before the tribulation. And so that would say that the rapture is going to happen even sooner. Not everybody believes that. That's okay. But nevertheless, it shows that Jesus is coming. Pulling back to the question, the way that I ended it in the book was, this guy says, oh, yeah, yeah, you can support. You know, because one of the questions I asked was, is it okay for a Christian to donate money to support the building of the third temple or to, you know, the red heifers were $100,000 each. I mean, they were expensive. Okay. And another $250,000 to fly them over. That's, that's you know. Jeez. I'm in the wrong business, man. Quarters of a million dollars. I've actually had several ranchers uh, reach out to me and say, hey, I want to be involved in this. (laughs) I'm not really the guy, but I can point to those who are. But at the end of the day, some teachers said, no, it's okay to give money to the cause. My particular uh, position was, you know, I wouldn't personally give money. I'd rather give money to chosen people ministries or Jews for Jesus in order to have them preach the gospel because we know the Jews need Jesus. Yeah. But, you know, is it a sin for somebody to give money to the building of the third temple? You know, I mean, it's a Romans 14 issue. It's it's personal. It's between them and the Lord. Personally, I wouldn't do it. But, you know, again, I will, I'm a little ambivalent there, but what I'm not ambivalent about is the system itself is 100% apostate. It is, God is not endorsing it, not even 1%, because it's a, it's a fresh repudiation or an assault or an insult against the finished work of Jesus. And as we mentioned earlier, God ripped the veil. The yeah. temple system is over for this period, the church. If you want to be saved in this current age, it's through Jesus Christ, the finished work, not through a system. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's uh, that's what I I try to relay in, in what you had just said about, like, we can be excited that the Lord's word keeps being like proven over and over and over again. When you're literally looking for the signs, you are literally seeing them. And we can use that as a tool to say, hey, look, this stuff said, he said it was going to happen and it's happening. You know, that's what I'm excited about. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um. And then there is a little bit back and forth about how long, sorry if y'all have already gone over this, um, how long 
would it take to get that temple built? A couple things on that. I'll, I'll answer it. I'll answer it, but also add this other thing: is is the Bible doesn't tell us uh, how long the temple will be around. All it says is that in the middle of the tribulation period, temples there. And they were offering sacrifices to such a degree that the Antichrist in Daniel 9, 27 stops them. So the sacrifices could have been going on for one day, one week, one year, 10 years. We don't know. So many people will ask, well, how long? I, I don't know. But what is interesting is I did an interview with a guy down in Dallas back last December, and he was at the ground zero. He actually was out there when the calves were being born. And he said, he showed me the architectural plans. He goes, I got a copy of the architectural plans for the temple. And so he showed them to me and he said, this thing is, they have have unlimited amount of money. So the prefab, the idea of having them built, they've already had the cornerstone done, as we know, it could be erected very fast, uh, months. The other thing would be is if they got permission, they could set up a tabernacle, a temporary tabernacle Mm -hmm. like they did in Moses's day. So they could be offering sacrifices once they got permission from day one, and then it would be months, No, I would say no more than a year before the, the temple would be uh, built. Yeah. A lot of people don't realize it's not huge. It's not like some gigantic, like th- a lot of people think of like a Catholic ordinating, you know, church. Mm-hmm. It's, it's literally like 40 feet by 30 feet. It's almost yeah. a square. It's only like two stories tall. It's, you know, yeah. it's not real big. It's going to probably be beautiful i'm assuming uh (laughs) apparently solomon you know and then herod when he did the whole you know expansion of the temple mount area it it looked pretty pretty stunning back then but Mm -hmm. um but man the the one thing i was going to say is uh, just to go back for a minute because when you were talking about sort of the sentiment and the culture of the jewish people right now over in israel how they're more secularized but there's this kind of especially now after this attack there's this really unified kind of uh patriotic um nationalist kind of feeling happening um one of the things that i also noticed um that has been happening uh around the world but mainly here in america is the rise of sort of this hebrew roots movement and the torah observant you know i I put christian christians in air quotes because the um they're really just hebrew roots light is what i like to you know call them Mm -hmm. and i think that's sort of feeding into what you're saying there because um and that apostate and that uh, deception that's going that you know Amir was saying you know and what do you, do you see that as part of that or am I just oh no doubt I think uh, if you for example if you you look at Netanyahu Benjamin Netanyahu uh, he knows that his biggest friend group in the world is evangelical Christians yeah now now thirty years ago they did not like Christians <laughs> because bad things in church history. But today, because of what you just described, more of a dispensational framework, uh, that's become a dirty word in a lot of churches. But um, the idea of just that there's a future for Israel, which would include the Hebrew roots uh, and even some of the Messianic congregation movements, that has 100 percent. I mean, it really got a good footing in the 80s and 90s and has just grown. And uh, it has absolutely contributed overall. To, again, the evangelical, they would still fall under, fall under the evangelical label, but their idea of supporting what's going on, 100% has contributed to that. 
Mm-hmm. Man, <laughs> it's just amazing how as God's world, word unfolds and things start to take place, you just see the pieces shifting around. And uh, if you're really paying attention, you can you can almost see what's happening in real time and figure out what's going to happen to be prepared, um, which I think is the warning, you know, scripture says, mm-hmm. watch and see and be prepared, know this, know these things, you know. Um, mm-hmm. So how much longer do we have to the rapture then? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> what's the date? Yeah, what's the, you know, I'm actually pretty strongly an anti-date setter, which has yeah. got me in a little bit of trouble. But yeah. um, and, and the main reason why, because I've been watching for so long, back in the mid-90s, you know, I was young and foolish, and I I, I had set some dates, and uh, they came and went. And you know, when you get mud on your face, you learn humility, and then you realize, <laughs> you know what? Never again, Lord. Th- please forgive me for being stupid. And uh, so I've realized, you know, again, it, and and the main reason is is as a pastor, I see the harm in it. Mm-hmm. I see people getting burned out. I see them. You know, just last few weeks, there's been some dates suggesting uh, with the UN conference uh, back in September and the you know the Feast of Trumpets and Rosh Hashanah and stuff. And exactly, and then they change the dates. And but I, I, I go on these sites and I, I read the comments, and and so many of them were like, you know, I am such a desperate place in my life. You know, we people struggle. Christians struggle, of course. And they're like, if the rapture doesn't happen next week, I don't know what I'm going to do. <laughs> and so they, they put their eggs in this basket, all their eggs in it, and then they go really excited, and then they get discouraged, and then it's like, where's the Lord at? And then they feel abandoned. And so, you know, the pastors often are the ones cleaning it up mm-hmm. versus these people out on social media making date suggestions, you know, whatever. And they're always very, you know, again, I, I, many of these guys I love. And I try to encourage them. They're like, well, I'm not date setting. Well, okay, maybe you're not, but you're suggesting, which you're just, you're leaving yourself a way out. And and there is harm from that. And of course, you know, what, what I saw right after that was, again, oh, that's not, maybe that wasn't the date. May, oh, no, 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 there's a new calculation. Right. Mathematical <laughs> calculation of the new moon. New moon's really on this date and the Essene calendar. And here we are again now, and now they can't change it anymore. And so you're like, Guys, don't do this. It, it just causes harm. <laughs> do you see, um, so like, again, just the last few years, even in those last few years, I feel like that's getting more and more. Like I'm I'm hearing more and more date setting and <laughs> recalculating. And I wanted to know if you have seen an increase in that. 100% because, and I think on, on one hand, I first certainly don't endorse it. On the other hand, I can see why. There are so mm-hmm. many things happening now. The convergence since really 2020, I mean, there's always been little things. It's been building slowly, but it is aggressively building in all of these areas. And so now what I ask the question is, yes, Mark 13, 37, Jesus told us to watch. But nowhere in the Bible are we ever commanded to date set, ever. And I think some of these people, I mean, again, brothers I love, they got charts. They they probably spent five hours, 10 hours, 20 hours calculating, (laughs) doing this and building the charts. You're like – that's a lot of time wasted yeah. on building a chart when Jesus never told us to build charts of his return. He told us to watch and also to be ready, but he didn't say try to calculate the day. Right. And not a single verse anywhere tells me to calculate the day. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, something that, that makes me think of when you were saying all that is that they could technically 
build the temple, and it could go for hundreds of years before the return of Christ. You know, or the absolutely, yeah. or the Antichrist. You know, decide. You know, God decides. The restrainers out of the way. Okay, let's yep. let's bring them on. I that people need to remember that that you know God has, like you said at the beginning, there's this appointment that God has set. And no one mm-hmm. will change that. It, God said it in eternity past. It will never be changed. It's He made His decision, and we're working towards it. We just don't know when it is. <laughs> Could be our every generation has thought it's their lifetime. I think too. Yep. You know, um, yep. I hope it is. I I hope I hope that I don't have to taste death. That I get to be raptured up. Um, you know, with the resurrected, and and I could be that generation, but. Hope alone isn't what you make your life on like that, you know? <laughs> I would say that, you know, some people say, you know, could it be centuries? And, you know, hypothetically it could. I would be very surprised only because <laughs> once, once Israel became a nation in 1948, that's a, that is the key marker in all of end time understanding. Now, you know, it's been 75 years since they've been a nation um, will it be 275 years? Highly unlikely, uh, especially, but again, I don't know. Right. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I just, I tend to think it would be unlikely based on, especially what we've been seeing over the past few years and even what's happening right now in, in Israel as it relates to the, the enemy, the increase of enemies surrounding them is very, very prophetic. Like how much longer could it, could it happen? You know, like right. how, how many people for that long can hate, a nation the size of New Jersey. Um, Right. But I, I have had, um, I built a, what got me into watching prophecy was like needing to see it for myself. And so I, I made a visual of history. I'm a very visual learner. And I saw like with the historical events that something just burst in the world in 1948. And it's not been the same since like, and it just like birth pains it just keeps getting more and more. And like you said, convergence and um, yeah, it's like, I, I know hypothetically it could go on and for a while, but like, we're like we're so close. Uh-huh. <laughs> well, even to, Jessica, I think one time you said there was this correlation from even like the UFO phenomenon and the birth of mm-hmm. Israel. It, it was right, right after that, like, Two yeah. or three years? Yeah, Roswell. Roswell's in 1947. The United Nations partitioned the land in 1947. So you have a lot of things converging and really beginning. I don't think that's a coincidence either. That's a whole other podcast. Mm-hmm. It's talking about <laughs> UFOs and all that. But, yeah. you know, as it relates to the, the establishment of the United Nations uh, right then in that same era, mm-hmm. you know, world government, etc. The there's no doubt that that was a turning point and I think whatever we're at the end of the age, what does that exactly mean? I, I don't know what that, I, I just means we're at the end of the age. We're, <laughs> we're not in, we're not in 1500 AD, you know, where Israel's not around. Uh, we're, we're at the end of the age and you see all of these other things coming together at the same time, which again, is not uh, it's not coincidental. And we're, we, and it's getting, you know, I would say every month that goes by, you know, it's easier to show people and to share, hey, look, mm-hmm. this is what the Bible has said for a long time. This is what prophecy teachers have talked about since 1970, Hal Lindsey's book, you know, The Late Great Planet Earth. And those seed things that he presented back then, hey, guys, 
you don't have to you don't have to be a sensationalist to look around and see now. No, there, has there been sensationalism? Absolutely, there has. Yeah. But there's been a lot of predictions. But now it doesn't take much. And, yeah. and without again, this isn't want. This isn't making something fit. It's becoming very obvious. Right, yeah, and that's um. So with the whole fact that we should not date set, <laughs> what I see that as people using that as leverage is to not watch at all and mock, Christians mocking and scoffing prophecy. Um, what would you say to them? <laughs> well, this comes up a lot because, uh, you know, when I, if, you know, I've had the opportunity, I was at a conference, so I was signing my book, right? Okay. Look, and, and I give, I always put two verses on there. One is, is Mark 13, 37. A Christian doesn't have the luxury not watch. Jesus said, what I say to you, I say to everybody, watch. I mean, you can't get any clearer than that. So if somebody isn't going to watch and they're going to scoff, well, then they're going to, they're a disobedient Christian. But the other verse that I put on there is Luke 19, 13, where Jesus says, occupy until I come. Mm -hmm. And so that's the mandate that we have. And so what I tell people is, look, if you're a watcher, as Jesus told you to, and you're going to obey that, um, you also should have a one-year plan, a five-year plan, a 30-year plan, a 50-year plan. And so you should plan your life out for 50 years. And if you're a watcher and you don't, well, then you're disobeying Luke 19, 13. So mm -hmm. this is the, this is the two-handed thing that, um, you know, when that day, if I'm, if I'm working out my 30-year plan and I get to year eight and Jesus returns, I still win. I'm going to be found watching and occupying all the way. So I tell people, don't wait to start the ministry. Don't wait to start your Bible study. Start it now. I mean, <laughs> do it. If you want to go to go to college, you want to get your either a PhD or you have a career, start it. Don't, don't wait. Be working all the way up until the last second. Mm. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. That is great advice. Yeah, that is, that is awesome. Don't hold yourself <laughs> up with your bottled water and ammo in a bunker. <laughs> Get out and preach yeah. the gospel. <laughs> and exactly. Yep. Be found faithful. Man, that's awesome. Well, is there anything else, you know, as we're, because I feel like we've kind of really unpacked the red heifer and the, the temple and the mount and the timing and all of that stuff. And even the cultural, like present cult cultural, you know, sentiment of things. Is there anything else that you, you know, if you could share with somebody, because we have a full, a full gamut of listeners that are, across the spectrum. Some are like us, where they believe in a rapture that's soon. Um, others are, you know, hey, maybe not so much, or they're not sure what they believe. Um, but if, if you could say something to kind of a cross, you know, section of people. You know, absolutely, because um, one of the presentations that I gave when I was in England uh, is because, you know, you have you have a variety of different people from church backgrounds. And, you know, again, they love Jesus, and, and that's fine. One of the things that I shared about was um, kind of what we discussed early on is that how do we approach the Bible? How do we interpret the Bible? And that that's I, I'm very very strong about that because you you have different camps of people. So you might have somebody who who's not a futurist. They they think everything's been fulfilled in Israel. Maybe replacement theology, or mm. they're partial preterist, or whatever. But but this is what I ask. I say, hey, look. If, if I, when I talk to those people, I'll say, look, do you believe when the Bible says in Micah chapter five, verse two, that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem? 
do you take that figurative or do you take that literally? <laughs> They're going to go, well, we take it literal. Okay. You know, when the Bible says that, you know, he would be, his hands and feet would be pierced in Psalm 22, verse 16, even though it's in the Psalms, do you take that literally or do you take that? And the point being is that all these, both of us, both groups, we take all of Jesus's prophecies, the prophecies of his first coming, we take them all literal. But it's interesting that all of a sudden this group in the middle of the game, they take the second coming prophecies figuratively and maybe they apply them to the church and you go, Hey, wait, whoa, whoa. When did we do that? You don't do that for the first coming prophecies. Why, why, what gives you the counsel to do that in the second coming prophecies? And and if you go back and you find the root of it, it begins with either origin, you know, in the second, third century yeah. or Augustine in the fourth century. And, you know, based on where they were, you know, they, they were in Alexandria, which was known for its allegorical interpretation of things. So people would say, well, this hasn't been taught for 1500 years. You go, well, let's go back and see where it started. But again, the question is, why, if you take the first coming prophecies literal, you don't do it for the second coming? Right. So for us, we go, hey, we're the ones that are being consistent. Not that we're better than anybody, <laughs> but just think about how you your worldview or your religious heritage, where that came from. Nowhere in the scripture does it say that the second coming prophecies are to be all transferred over to Israel or there's nothing to look for. They're very literal, just like the first coming ones. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's awesome. And yeah, I love that, uh, the way you use the, the verses about the first coming. Like if we, yeah, it's just a great parallel there. Um, I did want to say one thing. There is some confusion right now amongst people in the church, and and I don't hold it against them because most of these things are just ignorance. They've just never been taught, and so they don't know any better. And the internet can be just, you know, I, I heard it said that a lie makes its way, you know, around the world before the truth puts its shoes on. And um, I'm seeing a lot of misinformation and in, uh, in the understanding of the nation of Israel themselves. And, um, you know, for me personally, God made a promise to Abraham, and that's where the nation begins, you know, like, and so the land that he promised him is outlined in that covenant that he made with Abraham. And, um, but there's a lot of stuff, a lot of people right now that I, I noticed, and I don't want to veer off the topic, but it, it is important. I think, I think you're going to have some insights on it, um, about the Balfour Declaration and that they occupied something, you know, Israel came in and took some land that was presently occupied by the Palestinians and all that. Can you help someone who's been kind of feeding into that and believing that um, to give them clarity? Yeah. You know, Jews, as Jesus predicted in Luke 21, that the Jews, because of their rejection of him, would be kicked out of the land. Uh, Luke 21. Mm -hmm. So th that 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 exile, that dispersion started in 70 AD and then was finished in 135 AD under the Bar Kokhba revolt. But my undergrad was in Jewish studies. So we studied all this Jewish history and we addressed all these things. And what has been well known is that there have been Jews in the land in the, for the last 2000 years. There's never been a time that there hasn't been some Jews living there. Now, after 70 AD, you know, they were they were conquered by Rome, and so they did not have a governmental presence there. That's 100% true, all the way until really 1948. So the idea that the Jews came in and, for a, uh, and displaced a group of people, that's not how it went down, especially because um, – the at the time of the Balfour Declaration and, and a little bit before since the since the 15th century, uh, it, it, 
the land of Israel was a was a back backwater province of the Ottoman Empire, mm-hmm. and nobody wanted to live in Israel. I think God deliberately made it awful. So it wasn't like the French Riviera. I mean, uh, Mark Twain is is known as going, this is, who would want to live here? It's it's a deserted (laughs) land. God did that intentionally so that it it was waiting there throughout the centuries. And then when the immigrants started uh, coming to the land and the Jewish people started coming to the land of Israel in the late 1800s and then uh, with Herzl, uh, you know, really starting Zionism in the late 1897, you fast forward to Balfour, and they saw the immigration coming in. And now, take a Jew, for, for example. The Jews have always been alienated, no matter where they were. So mm-hmm. they've never fit in. They, they've never assimilated. It's the only group in the history of, of, of humanity that's never assimilated after being cast out of their homeland. Mm-hmm. So they had this idea, and at the Passover every year, next year in Jerusalem, next year in Jerusalem. So that it's part of their psyche. Well, then they start coming to the land, and for a Jew— this is your land. This is what you said. It's it's your it's your descendant. It's your ancestors. I mean, so they love the land and and the the the, the local population. Th- th- these are either they, well, you can't even call them Jordanians because J- Jordan was created in nineteen after World War One. <laughs> That's right. So th- these are just Arabs that have come up and they're living there, but they don't care about the land. They and as you can see. The Jews came in. They loved the land. Mm. They created it, and now it's green. It, it was for <laughs> for 1,500, 1,800 years. It lay in desolation. That's what Ezekiel 36 and 37 and 38 say. A land that was desolate, I will bring you back into a land that was desolate. So the idea that they came in uh, after World War or after really they became a nation, what, is, what many people did is the Jewish National Fund, worldwide fund, lots of money, they would come in and they would buy land from these poor Arabs. The Arabs were like, how much are you going to give me for that land? This is, this is like a <laughs> desert. Sure, I'll sell. And so they began buying the land. And certainly in 1948, the Arabs during the War of Independence said, hey, our fellow Arabs, you need to leave because we're going to wipe out Israel in a moment. And they had already laid a lot of the infrastructure during the 30s and 40s. So leave We'll wipe them all out, then you can come in and take their palaces and their other things. Well, that, as we know, that's not how it went. Yeah. So the refugee camps that began after the World War of Independence were caused by the Arab countries making these false promises. Well, then, as we know today, Egyptians don't want the Palestinians. Saudi Arabia doesn't want the Palestinians. Jordan doesn't want them. There's a big refugee camp <laughs> in Jordan from there. So when you look at the whole thing, there's another side of the story here. Now, is Israel perfect? Heavens, no. no. So we, we got to be balanced. Right. But the idea of them displacing a people group, there were no Palestinians. They were Arabs in the Ottoman Empire. So this the idea that they've been there forever is just simply not true. Cool. I mean, in the sense of a, of a distinct entity of a group or yeah. government. Um, one, one verse in particular keeps getting messaged to me in Revelation 3.9. Huh. The... Uh, Synagogue. Fake Jews. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Synagogue of Satan. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Who say they're Jews and who are not. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And they, they justify it as like saying that the Jews in Israel right now are those fake Jews. Like, <laughs> Well, yeah, there's a lot of theories about uh, the Khazars and other things that, that, that the, the 10 tribes were, you know, when they got, um, brought over from Assyria in 722 BC that they came and they became Britain and everything else. I, I don't really buy into that, 
But what we do know is this, that, the, that these people that live there now, they certainly have Jewish ancestry. We know that from DNA studies. I mean, that's, you, you might've said that 50 years ago, but now with DNA studies, it's very clear. Now, but again, what we do know is that God says in Ezekiel that these group, that I will bring them back, and they've been in all of the nations. So you have Ashkenazi Jews from Eastern Europe. You have Sephardic Jews going down from the Spain, the Iberian Peninsula. You have African Jews. You got Russian Jews. You got all these different groups that are coming back. And this is what we know. The people that are there, there now in the land, God said, I will bring them back in the last days. So that tells you whatever group is there, God says that he's going to bring them back. So to me, that's good enough. Yeah, absolutely. That was, I loved that. Yes. Yeah. That's awesome. Thank you. Yeah, that's, that's good. I I think, um, and you know, and this is part and partial with when God starts to move, Satan starts to move right alongside him, Mm, trying to bring in, you know, lies and destruction and and deceit so that people will no longer see or believe what God has said or, or what he's doing. And mm-hmm. uh, or at least be distracted. That that's especially the church. Like <laughs> people forget yeah. if Satan can, he has his claws in on the church in so many different ways, especially in Western church here in America. Um, but but yeah, if he can if he can get in and cause some division and some wedges and um, and turn some people who were commanded to actually pray for those people and pray mm-hmm. for the peace of Jerusalem in particular uh, and get them to not want to do it and have a hardened heart, then, then he's succeeded at something. Yeah. You see that over and over, the confusion today, especially with some of the bigger denominations that are, are part of the BDS, the boycott, divest, and sanctions movements against Israel. And, you know, and again, we, our job our, our calling, we're to love the Palestinians just as much as the Jews. They need Jesus just as much. So it's not that, the, the key is not that we don't love everybody. We should love everybody. The gospel's there and everybody should be treated right. So again, we don't give a, a carte blanche blessing on everything that Israel does as a, as a nation, because why? In reality, they're secular. They don't follow Jesus. They hate Jesus, many of them. And so mm-hmm. they, they are very much, uh, the, Paul says they're enemies of the gospel, but they're beloved. See, mm-hmm. if somebody yeah. asks me, Momondo, why do you support Israel? I don't support Israel because they're good. I don't support Israel because they're wonderful. Even God said, hey, look, I brought you in the land, not because you're righteous. So don't don't get a big head about it. So you're here in Deuteronomy 9. Mm-hmm. here because I made a promise. I made a promise. I write this in the book. I, God says, I made a promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's why I'm doing and bringing you the land. In the same way, what we stand for, what I support is the promises of God that he made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that, and, his, and the prophetic truths that he would bring them back into the land. So if somebody wants to kick them out of the land, well, I, I'm against that. I'm against that because God said, I'm going to bring them back, and I've promised this land to them. So mm-hmm. it doesn't mean that they're good, they're righteous, they're holy. In fact, again, they're currently apostate because they don't follow Jesus. But so, But what I would say is, look, I'm called to love Israel. I'm called to love the Palestinians. But Palestinians, I'm sorry. This land was given to Abraham's descendants. That's God's words. That's not me. So if you're trying to take it away from him, I have to go against that. Again, not without, not with endorsing everything that Israel does as a sinful nation. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well said. Really well said. That's good, man. Um, Yeah. And, you know, like I always say, you know, God, Satan would love to take God's chosen people and put them in bondage. And use them to defame his name, like <laughs> use them mm-hmm. to do evil things because it makes him look bad, you know. And the whole story of the Israelites 
from the beginning to now, it's truly a reflection of our own heart of God's consistent pursuit and his steadfast love and our wayward ways. Yeah. It's, it, it makes you humble because God doesn't love us because we're righteous either. And, and so in the same way, his faithfulness to Israel, that, that's really when you talk about defaming his name, um, the, the fact that they were out of the land, that's, that's the point of Ezekiel 36, 37, 38. He says, look, when you're out of the land, by default, my name is defamed because I made promises. So in, in order to rescue my name, I'm going to bring you back in the land, not because you deserve it, but in order to, to show the world that I keep my promises. Mm-hmm. And, and what a beautiful portrait of Jesus keeping his promises to us as his kids, as his people, that he'll never leave us nor forsake us as well. You know, we'll never perish. He holds us in his very hands. I mean, to me, I think, man, I, I, I'm so glad that God changes not and that he is a covenant uh, keeping God who is faithful. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Amen. Amen. Well, Mondo, this has been awesome. I, uh, man, and I want to recommend anyone who's listening, go get his book. And you have, a, you have a bunch of resources on prophecywatchers.com. I've put links to your book and to Prophecy Watchers um, on the show notes here. So if you're listening to podcasts, you can just scroll down and click on those and you can go right to the link and, and pick up the book. Um, you got anything coming down the pike uh, that you're working on that you can... Uh, this book's only been out about four weeks. <laughs> so, I mean, it's especially because right now the the, hef, the red cows were born two years ago, October 5th through the 12th of 2021. So they're officially over two years old now. Hmm. And so they need to be two years old in one month, according to the rabbis. And so I was trying my, I need to get, I need to get it out <laughs> before the birthday. And so I'm taking a breather, but I do have a couple nice. other things. That, that are in my mind because there, there's some, again, there's so many things going on and I, I think there's so much confusion too. So I desire to, uh, to help people understand clearly what God's word is saying again, from a futuristic perspective that it is clear. We're going to take the scripture straightforward, literal, and it makes sense. And as we see, mm-hmm. it connects with what we're seeing in the world. Yeah. Yeah. Well, if you guys ever want to bring one of your prophecy watchers conferences to the East coast, we would appreciate it. <laughs> Where uh, at? <laughs> Right outside of D.C.? We would love it. You know what? We've actually talked about that exact thing. Uh, Bob uh, Ulrich, who is our kind of CEO, he, he grew up in Jersey. So he, <laughs> so yeah. he, he's like, oh, yeah, there, there's a lot of, there's certainly a lot of need, no doubt. Yeah, I mean, if you guys find a good location, you could pull from New York, Philadelphia, D.C., you could, you know, Baltimore. There's a lot of metropolitan areas to. <laughs> it would be great to be right in the belly of the beast, Washington, D.C. Oh, man. <laughs> I might be able to help you out with that. Let me know. Yeah, <laughs> that would be fun, man. Well, Mondo, uh, stay on for a second. We're gonna we're gonna close out here, um, but uh, we really appreciate you and all that you're doing and the, the way that God's using you. And uh, you're just like instantly. Uh, I just had a rep- like I respect you, um, and I really <laughs> am grateful for um, for the work that you're doing and that you yeah. took the time to join us on the podcast. And you have an open door. Um, if you ever want to come back, you are absolutely welcome. You just shoot me an Talk email. About <laughs> yeah, yes. you know what? We should plan that. Okay, let's do it. Um, but stay on, and we'll we'll get the calendar out. <laughs> so, Thanks right. so much for coming. Yeah, good to be here. We'll catch everybody next time on All Out War. 
Thanks for listening to the All Out War podcast today. If you had a blast, then we'd love to have you back for another episode. So please subscribe and leave a review. We'd love to hear from you. You can also follow us on Instagram at All Out War Podcast or on Twitter at AOWCast. These episodes are also available on YouTube unless they contain a little too much truth. Thanks for listening and we'll catch you next time.